السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد ولا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respects and listeners, we gather for the reading of the hadith of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah from Sahih al-Bukhari. The hadith number from the original collection of Imam Bukhari, rahimahullah, for those of you who are following the original, is hadith number 2731. And for those of you who are following the abridged version of Sahih al-Bukhari by Imam Zainuddin al-Zabidi, rahimahullah, the Hadith number is 1192. It's a very long hadith, and allow me to at least begin the hadith with its first few words and the sanad chain of narration, and then, inshallah, we'll begin to explain. إلى الإمام البخاري رحمه الله قال حدثني عبد الله بن محمد قال حدثنا عبد الرزاق قال أخبرنا معمر عن قال أخبرني الزهري قال أخبرني عربة بن الزبيري عن المسور بن مخرمة ومروان عن المسور بن مخرمة رضي الله عنه ومروان يصدق كل واحد منهما حديث صاحبه قال خرج رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم زمن الحديبيه I relate with a continuous and uninterrupted chain from me to Imam Bukhari رحمه الله says Abdullah ibn Muhammad related to me that Abdul Razak related to us that Ma'mar informed us he said Zuhri informed me that Urwat ibn Zubayr informed me from Miswar ibn Makhrama radiyallahu an and Marwan both of them each one of them yusaddiqu kullu wahidin minhuma hadith sahibi each one of them attesting to the hadith and the narration of his companion ala they both said kharaja rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam zaman al-hudaybiyah that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam left at the time of Hudaybiyah. These are just the beginning words of the hadith. 
And undoubtedly the whole hadith is about the truce of Hudaybiyah, as it later came to be known. The background to the, in summary, the truce of Hudaybiyah took place in the sixth year of Hijrah. And the Prophet ﷺ travelled from Medina to Mecca with the intention of performing Umrah. And then he was prevented from entering the city of Mecca. So he camped with the companions at a place called Hudaybiyah. Eventually, after a number of incidents and exchanges with the Quraysh of Mecca, a truce was agreed with many different conditions. And one of the conditions was that the Muslims would agree not to entering the city of Mecca and completing their Umrah, but rather returning to Medina immediately turning around from Hudaybiyah, the place where they were. And then they would be given an opportunity to return a year later and complete the Umrah. So that was one of the conditions. There were other conditions too. The Prophet ﷺ then came out of his ihram in Hudaybiyah and so did the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. And then they all returned to al Madinah al-Munawwarah. This journey of Umrah is known as Umratul al-Hudaybiyah. And the truce that took place is known as Sulh al-Hudaybiyah, the truce of Hudaybiyah. The whole journey there and back in most of the original books of Seerah, is actually referred to as Ghazwatul Hudaybiyah, the expedition of Hudaybiyah. So you can call it Umratul Hudaybiyah, Sulhul Hudaybiyah, Ghazwatul Hudaybiyah, the expedition of Hudaybiyah, the truce of Hudaybiyah, the Umrah of Hudaybiyah. All of these definitions in their own way are correct. And this whole journey took place in the 11th month of the 6th year of Hijrah, right at the beginning, Prophet ﷺ left Medina on Monday, the, at the very beginning of the month of Dhul Qa'dah, in the 6th year of Hijrah. Now, there is so much related to this one journey. And the famous surah of the Qur'an, Surah Al-Fatih, the surah of victory, surah of conquest. Fatih originally means deliverance. And as a secondary meaning, it means conquest and victory. So Surah Al-Fatih, this surah was revealed upon the Prophet Wasallam's return journey from Hudaybiyah to, to Medina. And the verses speak about some of the events before the Prophet Wasallam left, some of the events that took place on the journey, and he also refers to the truce of Hudaybiyah, and some of the events that took place at Hudaybiyah itself. 
called the, I gave the title for this hadith as the truce of victory. And the reason is that although it was a truce, an agreement, a kind of peace treaty, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala called it a victory. And on on the surface, the treaty actually appeared to be very lopsided in favour of the pagans and to a great disadvantage, of a great disadvantage to the Muslims. And this is why initially even the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were unable to fathom the articles of the treaty and the Prophet ﷺ's agreement to all of the conditions, regardless of what they said. They were very rude, disrespectful, exploitative in their signing of the treaty. And the Prophet ﷺ tolerated their provocations, their verbal abuse, their lopsided conditions advantageous to themselves by the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam tolerated everything for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had buried in the apparent disadvantages and the apparent disadvantages of this treaty and the apparent victory and consolation of the Quraysh of Mecca. In all of this, Allah had buried deep within a great victory and a door of deliverance, not only for the Muslims of Medina, but for the whole Ummah, and in fact for the whole creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala till Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Because Surah Al-Hudaybiyah, this journey was a turning point. It was a watershed in many different ways. And Allah mentions that in Surah Al-Fatih. That after this, Allah has promised you, maghamin, spoils. This in itself is a victory. And the verses begin with the words, Inna fatahna laka fatham mubina, liyaghfira laka Allahu ma taqaddama min dhambika wa ma taakhra, wa yutimma ni'matahu alayka wa yahdayaka siratam mustaqeema. وَيَنْصُرَكَ اللَّهُ نَصْرًا عَزِيزًا هُوَ الَّذِي أَنزَلَ السَّكِينَةَ فِي قُلُوبِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ لِيَزْدَادُوا إِيمَانًا مَعَ إِيمَانِهِمْ Allah says verily, we have scored a very clear victory for you, so that Allah may forgive you your sins, the past and the future. And so that Allah may complete his favor on you, referring specifically to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And so that Allah may guide you to the straight path. And so that Allah may assist you. An assistance of strength. It is he, Allah, who sent down sakina, tranquility and serenity in the hearts of the believers. So that they may increase in faith with their faith. And to Allah belongs the 
armies of the heavens and the earth. And verily, Allah is all-knowing, all-wise. It's narrated in it's narrated when the Sahaba radiyallahu anhu heard these verses. The Sahaba radiyallahu anhu said, Ya Rasulullah, is this a victory? So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Yes. And then when he recited these verses, some of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhu said to him, Ya Rasulullah, this is all for you. So what's for us? Since the whole address is only for the message, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam recites the next verses. لِيُدْخِلَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارُ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا That's so that Allah may enter the believers, the believing men and the believing women, in gardens beneath which rivers shall flow, therein they shall reside forever. And the verses continue. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala called this truce of Hudaybiyah, despite its apparent disadvantages to the Muslims, a clear victory, a clear conquest. And this is why many Sahaba, not just one, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, and others, they would actually say to the successors and their students, they would say, you all consider the conquest of Makkah to be the victory, whereas we, we actually consider the truce of Hudaybiyah to be the victory. And not one Sahabi, many Sahaba radiallahu anhu would repeat this. They would say that you, addressing the, the students and successors, the tabi'een, they would say you all consider and view the conquest of Makkah in the eighth year of Hijrah to be the fath, the victory. Whereas we, they wouldn't deny that it's a victory. They would say that of course it's a victory. But the true victory we actually regard as being the truce of Hudaybiyah. So the Sahaba radiallahu anhum considered it a truce of victory. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam considered it a truce of victory. And most importantly, Allah revealed an entire surah to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam announcing that this treaty, this truce, is a clear victory which Allah has bestowed upon the Messenger ﷺ. And the reason is, it led to so many different things. So many different things. Just one of them. There are so many, just one of them. Abu Sufyan, the leader of the Quraysh, after the Battle of Badr, all the way till the conquest of Mecca. After the truce of Hudaybiyah, he travelled with the caravans up north for trade. And at the beginning of this year, we completed the reading of the hadith of Heraclius. And Abu Sufyan was a main character in there. He was a main narrator of the hadith to Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. And he was narrating his whole experience when he wasn't a Muslim. And in this period of truce, after the sixth year of Hijrah, 
so much was achieved. The Prophet ﷺ dispatched letters to so many different rulers and emperors. He entered into alliances and treaties with other tribes. The trade route was once again opened up from Mecca to Sham. And taking advantage of that, Abu Sufyan travelled with his companions on a very large trade caravan of the Quraysh. There he was summoned by Heraclius, interrogated in the royal palace in Jerusalem. And then, Abu Sufyan himself says that his engagement with Heraclius Heraclius's piercing and precise questions and his very accurate analysis of the answers of Abu Sufyan opened up a new world for Abu Sufyan. And he says at the end of the hadith that in this way Islam was opened up for him. And Islam first entered his heart. And it continued to take hold of his heart until the conquest of Mecca. In fact, he felt compelled to believe. And this was the chieftain of the Quraysh. Not any member of the Quraysh, but the chieftain of the Quraysh. And it was after the truce of Hudaybiyah that so much happened. Some of the leaders of the Quraysh all eventually embraced Islam. Even Khalid ibn al-Walid radiyallahu anhu, it was after the truce of Hudaybiyah that he traveled. Amr ibn al-As, his friend, he traveled. The others gradually traveled to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. With this truce and the laying down of arms, people were able to meet with each other. Those, until now, the Quraysh had a stranglehold on public opinion because they controlled the perception of the people in relation to the Muslims. But after the truce of Hudaybiyah, people were free to meet one another, to engage. People saw the Muslims for what they were. And this opened, indeed it was a fatah, it was an opening. He opened up people's hearts and minds. And what the Quraysh smugly thought of as a victory for themselves with the truce of Hudaybiyah, within 10 months they realized that it was a disaster for them. Within 10 months. And nobody could see this. In fact, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum was so grieved, was so upset, and they were so overcome by shock that when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam told them to rise and shave their heads and break their ihram, none of them stood up. Because they were in such a state of shock. They were so overwhelmed by the grief. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had buried within this apparent defeat and these apparent disadvantages a clear victory for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And not just for him, but it was a watershed for not only the Muslims of Medina or the Arab nation of the peninsula, but the whole world. It was a watershed. History changed after that. History changed with the Hijrah. And then after the Hijrah, this was the main event. And the conquest of Mecca was a direct result of the truce of Hudaybiyah. Now, what was the background? 
to the, this journey that the Prophet ﷺ undertook. Uh, before I continue, I keep on using the word Hudaybiyah. As I mentioned, you can refer to this journey as Ghazbatul Hudaybiyah, the expedition of Hudaybiyah. You can refer to it as Umratul Hudaybiyah, the Umrah of Hudaybiyah. Because the Prophet ﷺ, he completed one Hajj and four Umrahs. In the sixth year of Hijrah, this was his first Umrah after the Hijrah. This is known as Umratul Hudaybiyah. The second Umrah was in the seventh year of Hijrah, one year after. As per the truce, they were to return and complete the incomplete Umrah of the year before. This is known as Umratul Qada, the Umrah of completion, of making up for the missed Umrah the year before. Then in the eighth year of Hijrah, after the conquest of Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ put on the ihram for Umrah from Ji'rana, which is to the northeast of Mecca. And the Prophet ﷺ performed Umrah from there. This was his third Umrah. And then the final Umrah was with the one Hajj that he did in the tenth year of Hijrah. The Umrah along with his Hajj. So the, the Prophet ﷺ, after the Hijrah, completed one Hajj and four Umrahs. And this was actually the first of them. And it's known as Hudaybiyah, because as I said, the place. The place Hudaybiyah was a place from before known to the Arabs as Hudaybiyah. It's a few miles to the west of Makkah al-Mukarramah. And in fact, over time, the area was called Hudaybiyah, but as often happens, another name has overtaken Hudaybiyah. So gradually, not now, but uh, in fact a few centuries ago, a village uh, grew up there. Well, there was a village that became inhabited and it grew in size. And eventually the name Hudaybiyah was overwhelmed by the new name of the village. And that's continued till today. It's actually known as a Shumaisi. So even today, some of the buildings and structures and features in that area are referred to not so much as a Hudaybiyah, but rather a Shumaisi. So if, uh, if ever you need to search, it's, the area is known as a Shumaisi, and originally it was known as a Hudaybiyah. It's just a few miles to the west of Mecca. Now, <clears throat> the pronunciation of Hudaybiyah is you can say both. You can say Hudaybiyah without the tashdeed on the ya, or you can say Hudaybiyah with the tashdeed. So Hudaybiyah or Hudaybiyah. And these are all famous names, just like Ji'rana. You can say Ji'rana or Ji'rana. So Hudaybiyah, or you can say Hudaybiyah. Both pronunciations are correct. Hudaybiyah is, marks the edge of the haram. So the Haram of Mecca, sometimes when you use the word Haram, generically it just means a sanctuary. So in Mecca al-Mukarramah, people say Al-Haram al-Makki, meaning the Meccan sanctuary. And what they normally mean by Al-Haram al-Makki or the Haram, the Haram, in today's language, mainly most people just assume it to refer to Al-Masjid al-Haram. But originally, the word Haram, meaning sanctuary, refers not just to al-Masjid al-Haram, but to the whole area 
which Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam have declared to be sacred and a sanctuary of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that whole area is quite wide. And Hudaybiyah marks the edge of the Haram to the west. So, as I explained in my commentary of the Hadith of Kitab al-Hajj many years ago, you can consider the regions to be as follows. You have Zone A. Zone A is the sanctuary, the Haram. The area which is forbidden. The area which is declared sacred by Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa There are many laws particular and peculiar to this haram and sanctuary. One of them is that anyone who... Well, even if you are in the haram, either as a visitor or in the resi- as a resident, if you wish to do umrah or hajj, you can't just start from there. If you wish to do umrah, you can't just start from there. You have to actually go out of the haram into the area known as the hill, the lawful area, not the forbidden area. And you have to enter into the state of ihram from the hill, the lawful area. Now, where do people normally do that? Most often people go to the na'im, which is uh, marked by Masjid Aisha radiallahu anha, and it's known as Masjid al-Tan'im. The reason is that the Na'im marks the edge of the Haram to the north of Makkah al-Mukarramah. Ji'rana marks the edge of the Haram to the northeast. In fact, it's a bit further, but it's to the, that's where the Prophet ﷺ entered into the state of Ihram in order to do Umrah after the conquest of Makkah. And Hudaybiyah marks the edge of the Haram to the west of Makkah al-Mukarramah. So it's actually on the edge. So much so that when the Prophet ﷺ was camped in Hudaybiyah and for many days at the time of this treaty, his tent was in the halal area, in the hill. But he would regularly pray his salah away from the tent in the haram, in the sacred area. So his tent was pitched just outside the uh, edge of the haram in Hudaybiyah. This is why Hudaybiyah, part of it is in the haram, part of it is out. So it's on the edge, it's on the boundary. So those who wish to end do umrah, even if they are resident or visitors in Makkah al-Mukarramah, they have to go out into the halal area, known as the hill. And that's mar- marked by the Na'im to the north, Hudaybiyah to the west. So if you imagine these zones, zone A is the haram, the sacred area. Zone B, outwards, is what's known as the hill, the halal area. So if you in Makkah al-Mukarramah, you have to go out of zone A into zone B. And zone B, the region of zone B, the whole zone, is marked off by what we call mawaqit, the plural of miqat. And these are stations, stations of hajj. So these stations, if you imagine a whole zone, this is known as zone B, the hill. Which means that if you are in Makkah al-Mukarramah, in the Haram, 
and you wish to perform Umrah, you go only to the hill to zone B. And then you enter the haram in a state of ihram. You can't, you must enter in a state of ihram from outside the haram, from the hill, from zone B. But if you are traveling for hajj or for umrah from outside the mawaqeet, from outside zone B, which is applicable to most of the world, then you can't pass the stations of the mawaqeet, the stations of zone B, i.e. the rest of the world is zone C. For all of those who are in zone C, they can't proceed to the haram without entering into the state of ihram. Not even in zone B, but actually in zone C. They can't even enter zone B without being in a state of ihram. So three zones. The central zone is the haram of around Mecca. And when we say haram, we're not just referring to al-masjid al-haram. Rather, we're referring to the wider region known as the Great Sanctuary of Makkah al-Mukarramah. That's zone A. Zone B is a region between zone A and zone C, known as al-Hil, the halal area. But the whole of the hill is within the Mawaqeet, the stations of Hajj and Umrah, and that's zone B. And then beyond that, for the rest of the world, is zone C. Most people are in zone C. When we travel from here, normally it's an when we travel because uh, from the west we travel to Jidda, which is also pronounced Judda. People often raise objections that uh, Judda isn't it Jidda? Well, it's Jidda, Judda, Mina, Muna. Many words in Arabic you can pronounce them with a dhamma or the kasra. لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنَةٌ For those of you who understand Qira'at, in fact, this is the... Most of the other Qira'at are Iswatun حَسَنَةٌ لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنَةٌ So, Uswa, Iswa, Muna, Mina, Judda, Jidda. So since we travel towards Jidda, normally we are told that before you enter Jidda, from the, from the air, you have to enter the state of Ihram. That's why Jiddah marks the beginning of zone B. And we are in zone C. Before we enter zone B, we must enter into the state of Ihram. So the pro- Hudaybiyah is at the edge of the Haram. And that's why the Prophet وسلم, he pitched his tent there remarkably. His tent was in the hill, the halal area, zone B. But he would actually go forward and pray his salawat in zone A in the haram. Now, what was the background to the expedition of Hudaybiyah in the sixth year of Hijrah? A year before, well, six years before, Prophet ﷺ did Hijrah. And a year ago, I commented in detail on the hadith of Hijrah by Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha from Sahih al-Bukhari. And we did that in seven parts. So, and remarkably, uh, the new Hijri year begins in the next few days. Next Friday we will be in the 1437th year of Hijrah. The month of Dhul-Hijjah comes to an end in a few days. And the month of Muharram beginning marking the beginning of the new 1437th year of Hijrah, begins. So, 
six years before the Prophet ﷺ did hijrah. And then from the hijrah, many things changed. The Quraysh, look how powerful they were. The Prophet ﷺ had to leave Makkah al-Mukarramah in secret with Abu Bakr as-Siddiq And the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, many of them had left before. Those who could. Otherwise, and they did so in great secrecy, with the fear of murder, torture, and persecution hanging over their heads. In the second year of Hijrah, we had the Battle of Badr, in which the Muslims scored a decisive victory against the Quraysh. To avenge their defeat in the Battle of Badr, the Quraysh, a year later, in the third year of Hijrah, marched towards Makkah al-Mukarramah with 3,000 soldiers. In Badr, there were only a 1,000. A year later, in Uhud, there were 3,000. The Battle of Uhud was a kind of stalemate in the sense that the Muslims initially scored a victory, but then, because of a strategic error, they suffered huge losses towards the end of the battle. And the Quraysh were gloating in their nominal victory and in the wound they had inflicted on the Muslims. But still they were unable to achieve their goal, which is they were unable to uproot the Muslims from Medina. They were unable to silence the Prophet ﷺ and eliminate Islam from the city as they had wanted to. And they were weakened, so weakened that although the Battle of Uhud took place on the outskirts of Medina, if they wanted, they could have, as was the original thought of some people, invaded the city. But they were weakened at the end of the battle, so instead they returned. So in a way, the battle to Mecca, in a way the battle didn't go well for the Quraysh either, and because of a strategic error, the Muslims suffered huge losses towards the end. Then, two year, a few other battles took place, but two years later, in the fifth year of Hijrah, a year before the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the Quraysh of Mecca wanted to eliminate Islam once and for all. And so they marched on Medina. Not alone, not just with 3,000 soldiers, not with 1,000 like in Badr, or 3,000 like in the third year of Hijrah in Uhud, but this time they established alliances with many different tribes. And at least 10,000 soldiers from around Mecca and Medina marched on Medina with the specific intention of destroying the stronghold of the Muslims once and for all. This led to the siege of Medina, also known as Ghazwat al-Khandaq, the Battle of the Trench, and the Prophet ﷺ took defensive measures by digging a trench. And much of this is covered in the Surah, Surah Al-Ahzab. I won't go into any of the details here. But there wasn't much fighting because the Muslims were able to adopt this defensive measure of the trench. And the Quraysh, along with their allies, were unable to invade the city. 
as a result of which they camped outside, they laid siege to the city, it was bitterly cold. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent those uh, people to assist Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Strife and discord were sown in the camp of the enemy, disagreements arose between them, and eventually without achieving any of their aims, none whatsoever, the Quraysh and their allies disagreed amongst themselves, broke camp, and they all returned to their respective regions, and the Quraysh went back to Makkah al-Mukarramah. It was on that occasion that the Prophet said to the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, that from this day onwards, they will never march against us again. Rather, we shall march against them. And then, after a few months, there was Ghazwat ibn al-Mustaliq, which I've spoken of in detail in the commentary of Hadith al-Ifq, of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, again, which we covered in seven parts. And then, a year later from the Battle of the Trench, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam announced his intention to go to Makkah al-Mukarramah, not with any intention of fighting, but only to perform Umrah. And this was, the announcement was preceded by a dream that the Prophet ﷺ saw. And Allah refers to that in Surah Al-Fatih. لَقَدْ صَدَقَ اللَّهُ رَسُولَهُ الرُّؤْيَا بِالْحَقِّ لَتَدْخُلُنَّ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ إِنْ شَاءَ اللَّهُ آمِنِينَ مُحَلِّقِينَ رُؤُوسَكُمْ وَمُقَصِّرِينَ لَا تَخَافُونَ That verily Allah has made true to his messenger, his dream. Or Allah will make true to his messenger, his dream. Of truth. That all of you will surely enter al-Masjid al-Haram. If Allah wills. Now... Insha'Allah, if Allah wills, مُحَلِّقِينَ رُؤُوسَكُمْ وَمُقَصِّرِينَ Shaving your heads and clipping your hair in such a state that لا تخافون, you will not fear. The meaning of insha'Allah here is it's not conditional. If a human being says, if a subject says, that if the if his majesty wishes then this will happen referring to the king if the king himself says that if i wish when he says if i wish he's not making the consequence conditional it's a way of announcing his power and majesty that if i wish meaning who can stop me and that's for a normal king when it comes to Malik al-Muluk, the king of kings, the sovereign of sovereigns, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he says, Allah, it's an announcement and a declaration of his power, that his will is not contingent on anything. But he works in different ways. So you will surely enter al-Masjid al-Haram, if Allah wills.
And for those of you who understand Arabic, it's what we call insha'Allah tahqiqan la ta'liqa. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa saw a dream. And most likely this was in Al-Madinat al-Munawwarah because Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahmatullahi relates a hadith. And in that hadith is mentioned that when the Muslims left, they were convinced that they would enter Makkah al-Mukarramah and complete their Umrah because of the dream of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Medina, he announced to the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum that I will be traveling to Makkah al-Mukarramah to perform the Umrah. The Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were delighted, joyful, filled with glee. Now before I continue this, we need to understand something. Their relationship with Makkah al-Mukarramah. Why did this dream mean so much to them? Why did the Hijrah mean so much to them? Why were they so delighted, overwhelmed with joy and glee in having the opportunity to go to Makkah al-Mukarramah? In a way, one could have thought that they suffered so much at the hands of the Quraysh. They had to flee the city. They had to abandon it. Now they made a new life in Medina. This was their new home. So in a way, they should have or they would have forgotten and left behind Makkah al-Mukarramah and made an intention of not returning there again. Pushed it out of their hearts and minds. But no. The relationship of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum with Makkah al-Mukarramah. In fact, the relationship of the Arabs in general with Makkah al-Mukarramah needs to be understood to realize a full impact of this dream of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam on the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. The Kaaba of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the city of Makkah al-Mukarramah meant so much to the Arabs. Their hearts were bonded with the house of Allah. The Quraysh, they weren't a mighty tribe. They were rich, they were famous. They were very diplomatic. They were extremely influential, disproportionately. But militarily and numerically, they weren't a huge or a powerful tribe. There were far more numerous and far more militarily powerful tribes around Mecca and in the whole of Arabia. Why was Quraysh so prominent? They drew their fame, their name, their power, their wealth, their influence, their prestige because of one thing and one thing alone. They drew all of this from the fact that they were the custodians of the house of Allah. They were the custodians of the Kaaba. They controlled the Siqaya, the watering of the pilgrims. They controlled the Rifada, the feeding of the pilgrims. They, they controlled the Sadana, the custody, custodianship of the Kaaba. And because of this, the rest of the tribes of Arabia accorded them a great status. They gave them preferential treatments in 
alliances and treaties, in trade, they drew great respect from this one fact alone. And Allah refers to that in the Qur'an as well. لِإِلَافِ قُرَيْشِ إِلَافِهِمْ رِحْلَةِ الشِّتَاءِ وَالصَّيْفِ فَلْيَعْبُدُوا رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ الَّذِي أَطْعَمَهُمْ مِنْ جُوعٍ وَآمَنَهُمْ مِنْ خَوْفٍ As I explained in the tafsir of Surah Al-Fil in Surah Quraysh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala boasts of his favor to the Quraysh, and these favors included the fact that they were able to travel far and wide as traders, as merchants. That they enjoyed the custodianship of the Kaaba, and that they enjoyed safety. So much so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that have we not made the haram a sanctuary for them? At a time when people were being snatched all around them. It wasn't a safe place. There was no law. It was a tribal society and it was a lawless society. But the Quraysh, only because of their custodianship of the Kaaba, they enjoyed great prestige. So that was a, all of the Arabs held the Kaaba of Allah and, and the Masjid al Haram in great esteem. Because of their attachment to the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And indeed, وَإِذْ جَعَلْنَا الْبَيْتَ مَثَابَةً لِلنَّاسِ وَأَمْنَاهِ And verily, we have made the house a place of off-return. And as I mentioned, what's the meaning of off-return? Even for those who visit the Kaaba, they go and their hearts become attached to the Kaaba of Allah. When they return, their bodies may go home, but their hearts are left behind with the Kaaba. And that's for a visitor. As for those who were born around the Kaaba, who grew up around the Kaaba, imagine the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. For them, their love of Makkah, of course, partly it was to do with the fact that that's where they were born, that was their home city, that's where they grew up, that's where their homes were, and their families were. But far more importantly, and over and above all of this, it was because of the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam facing Makkah al-Mukarramah, even though he was leaving for Medina. And in one narration, he said this again later, after com- coming back from Medina. He faced Makkah al-Mukarramah, and he said, of all, O Makkah, of all the places on earth, on Allah's earth, you are the most beloved to me. And had it not been for the fact that your people drove me out, I would have never left. So, when the Sahaba radiallahu anhum heard that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa had seen a dream in which they were all returning to al-Masjid al-Haram performing Umrah and doing the tawaf of the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, one cannot imagine the joy that filled them. And they all began making preparations. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa on this occasion even invited some of the neighboring tribes to join him. One of the reasons was that the Prophet ﷺ, he went with peaceful intentions. But he did not and could not trust the Quraysh. The Quraysh, having done everything, and having left no stone unturned in the past many, many years, including launching full-scale invasions towards Medina, having done so much, how could they be trusted not to harm the Messenger ﷺ, 
in their own home ground. So the Prophet ﷺ took precautionary measures. And part of those precautionary measures was that he invited some of the tribes around Medina, of the Bedouin, who still respected Makkah al-Mukarramah, to join him on this expedition of the Umrah, just as support. Eventually the Prophet ﷺ left. The surrounding tribes, they refused to join him. They were hypocritical. So they didn't say to him that this is suicidal. That's what they thought. بَلْ ظَنَنْتُمْ أَنْ لَنْ يَنْقَلِبَ الرَّسُولُ وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِيهِمْ أَبَدًا وَزِيِّنَ ذَلِكَ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ وَظَنَنْتُمْ ظَنَّ الصَّوْءِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says addressing these tribes that you, you actually thought that the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the believers with him, they will never be able to return to their families if they go to Mecca on this trip of the Umrah. So they thought it's a suicidal mission. And they actually said amongst themselves that only a year ago the Quraysh came with 10,000 soldiers and were about to invade the city of Medina. And now a year later, Muhammad wishes to travel with his companions to Medina. This, he will be killed. He and his companions will be killed. They are going straight into the jaws of death. So, And he's inviting us to join him. No thank you. That's what they said amongst themselves. But hypocritically, when they came to the Prophet ﷺ, and he invi- when he invited them, their response was, They said, We are quite busy with our families and our work and our wealth. فَاسْتَغْفِلَّنَا So seek Allah's forgiveness on our behalf. So Allah says, يَقُولُونَ بِأَلْسِنَتِهِمْ مَا لَيْسَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ They say with their tongues that which isn't in their hearts. So this is hypocrisy in the extreme. In their hearts, this is what they actually believed about the Prophet wasallam. They, they thought he was mad. They thought he was suicidal. In a way they were gleeful because they thought that he's never going to return. Neither he or his companions. And that he was heading straight into the jaws of death. So in, his heart, in their hearts they thought he is mad, he is finished, he is defeated. He is dead by the end of this journey. But with their tongues and their smiles they were saying... Pray for us. That's the height of hypocrisy. So Allah says, they say that which isn't in their hearts. Look at the difference and the contrast between the feelings and emotions of their hearts and the statements of their tongues. So the Prophet ﷺ was grieved by their response, but he left. How many Sahaba did the Prophet ﷺ leave with? Approximately 1,500 Sahaba And remember, they went only with the intention of Umrah. But to ensure that they would be safe and they wouldn't be attacked, they did carry weapons with them. One. Another thing is that some of the Sahaba traveled not on foot or even on camels, but actually on horseback as cavalry, mounted armed cavalry. And this was for the protection, although it wasn't much, it was a little. 
And that thus the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam left with 1400 sahaba radiyallahu, sorry, 1500, approximately 1500 sahaba radiyallahu anhum from Makkah al-Mukarramah. In some of the narrations, even in Bukhari itself, the wording is clear that we were 1400. That's the most famous figure given. But the reality is that there are many, many narrations. And the authentic narrations all show 1400 to 1500. So it's quite simple. Uh, it was a number in between. It was more than 1400. Uh, but to round it off, some of the narrators said, some of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum themselves said 1400, whereas the others said 1500. So approximately 1500 Sahaba radiallahu left Medina with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam on Monday at the beginning of the Qa'dah in the sixth year of Hijrah. And they also took Hadi with them. Hadi are those animals that are gifted to the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in order to be slaughtered and sacrificed in the haram of Allah azza wa So these are the Hadi. Now traditionally, uh, it's not very common now. Most of us, when we go for Umrah and for Hajj, we go without Hadi. But traditionally, the Arabs especially, they would drive their sacrificial animals with them from their homes all the way across the desert. That's what the Prophet ﷺ did. He did it on this occasion. In the sixth year of Hijrah, this was his first pilgrimage, minor or major, after the Hijrah. The Prophet ﷺ took along with him sacrificial animals, he and the other Sahaba radiallahu anhum. And amongst them there was just 70 large animals. So cows or camels. 70 large animals were driven by the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum from, from Medina to Mecca to be sacrificed in the haram of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rasulullah would be very mindful of this. So much so that in the ninth year of Hijrah, he didn't go for Hajj. But he sent Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu as the Amir of Hajj. But... Although he didn't go for Hajj himself with such dedication, the Prophet ﷺ gave the Sahaba عنهم, a large number of animals in his name as his Hadi to be sacrificed on his behalf in the Haram of Allah. The, the devotion of Rasulullah ﷺ was truly astounding. Although he didn't go for Hajj himself in the ninth year of Hijrah, he still sent a Hadi. So Hadi means those sacrificial animals which are driven by the people in the state of Ihram along with them to be sacrificed in the sanctuary of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in and around Mecca or sent, even if they don't go themselves, they are sent with them. So on this occasion, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam left with 1500 sahaba and 70 large animals as sacrificial animals to be slaughtered and sacrificed at the end of their Umrah in the Haram of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this was on Monday, the beginning of the Qa'dah in the 11th, in the 6th year of Hijrah. Then the Prophet sallallahu left Medina. And where did he go? He left the central part of Medina where his masjid is. And then he went to Dhul Hulayfa. Dhul Hulayfa is just on the outskirts of Medina. 
I believe in this day and age, is called Abiyar Ali. And it's just on the outskirts of Medina. That was the famous place where the Prophet ﷺ would travel for pilgrimage and also return and stop on the way back to Medina. And it's known as Dhul Hulayfa. And for those who are traveling to do Umrah or Hajj, and they come from the northern routes, from Sham, Syria, Jordan, the Levant, that whole area, or they come from Medina, then that is a sunnah place for them to enter into the state of Ihram, because that's where the Prophet ﷺ would do it from, at Dhul Hulayfa. So he left Medina, and then he camped briefly at Dhul Hulayfa, just on the outskirts, a few miles uh, from the center of the city, and there he prayed Salat al-Dhuhr, and after Salat al-Dhuhr, the Prophet وسلم, along with the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, he marked the animals, and ash'ar, وَقَلَّدِ الْهَدِي The meaning is, the Prophet وسلم, marked the animals. How would he mark the animals? Some of the animals were marked by slightly grazing the humps of the animals, or the side, so that a little blood trickled. And that blood was, was then, it, because it was smudged, it was smeared, and it, the area became smudged, it was a mark. The re, there was a reason for doing this. Ish'ar simply means i'lam, meaning to mark something, so that people know. Because it was a lawless tribal society, many of the tribes, if you were travelling through the desert, many of the tribes, and this was even before the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Many of the tribes, they would look for any opportunity to carry out raids. And in fact, raiding was a kind of chivalrous sport. It may sound strange to us, but they had, they had all these rules. So, you can carry out a raid. And when you do a raid, you can do this, you can do that, you can do this, you can do that, but you can't do this. So the Arabs had this strange chivalrous code where they believed in the sport of raiding. So they actually raid one another. And they'd carry off livestock and wealth and weapons and armor. And they knew that today we've scored a goal, but tomorrow someone else can score a goal against us. And uh, all is fair in love and war. And uh, that's what they used to believe. So to ensure that the livestock wasn't carried off by any raiding tribes they would mark all the animals. This was even before Islam and the time of the Prophet ﷺ, when they would travel to the Haram. Because the sanctuary, remember as I said, the Arabs held the Kaaba of Allah and the Haram in great esteem. So much so, that in the sacred months, the Al-Ashur Al-Hurum, and Dhul Qa'dah was uh, one of the sacred months, and the Prophet ﷺ distrusted the Quraysh of Mecca to such a degree that he didn't trust them not to attack him and the Muslims, even though it was a sacred month of Dhul Qa'dah and in the sanctuary of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is, what, this is one of the reasons why the Muslims were so bitter towards the Quraysh. As I will explain when we study the Hadith, they had this code that even a rival enemy tribe when it came to the sacred months, four months throughout the year, 
Shawwal, Dhul Qa'da, Dhul Hijjah, and Rajab. In these sacred months, the, Sahara, the, the Arabs, they had a code that any rival tribe, even if they were at war with each other, they would lay down their arms and they could all come to the sanctuary of Allah, visit and perform the rites of Hajj and Umrah, and no one would be barred from Makkah al-Mukarramah. So much so that they say the Arabs, the Arabs were such that if someone took someone else's life, they would not settle for anything except blood retaliation. And this is why they were always engaged in internecine warfare, killing off one another. But in the months of, in the sacred months, in the haram of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if someone met another man from another tribe who had killed his father, they would not touch one another. They would even spare a a father's killer because of the fact that they were in the sacred months, they were in the sacred house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the haram. And all of the Arabs throughout Arabia knew this and this is why the Quraysh were respected. And all of them had this custom. But their blind hatred of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa was such that when it came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and the Muslims, all conventions, all laws, all customs, all traditions, all rules were thrown out of the window. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ did not trust the Quraysh not to harm him and the Muslims, even though they were traveling only with the intention of Umrah, and it was going to be in the sacred months. He didn't trust them. This is why he took precautionary measures, and some of the Sahaba, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were lightly armed, and in fact there was even a contingent of cavalry amongst them. And in this way, the Prophet ﷺ left. And arriving at Dhul Hulayfa, he marked the animals so that, in the tradition of the Arabs, so that people would know that these are the animals destined for the house of Allah, just as before, the Arabs would not harm them or touch them. These animals were consecrated. And in this way, the Prophet ﷺ marked the animals, وَقَلَّدَ الْهَدْي Which means... This wording is not in this hadith that we are reading, but it's in another narration of Bukhari to do with the same incident. The Prophet ﷺ garlanded the animals. And the meaning of garlanding the animals is that the animals would be given a qilada. A qilada is a necklace. A necklace of what? A garland. So what the Arabs would do is that to mark these sacrificial animals, they would hang garlands of dry leaves. You may have seen, in some, uh, even on some doors, in some traditions, they have a string with a cluster of dry leaves. That's a garland. So the Arabs would use a similar string filled with dry leaves as a garland. It wouldn't always be fresh flowers or leaves, and they would hang these around the sacrificial animals. And not just dry leaves, but even bark of wood, wood bark, bark of trees, even sandals. In fact, one of the sacrificial animals of Rasulullah وسلم, Umm al Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha, she put some old slippers around the so they would put leather strips, strings, whatever they would put, these would be garlands. And the garlands would be placed over the 
necks of the animals and they would be garlanded in this way, all of them, so that this, they would be marked as sacrificial animals for the house of Allah. And we may scoff at this, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, O oh believers, لا تحلوا شعائر الله ولا الشهر الحرام ولا الهدي ولا القلائد That, O oh believers, do not consider lawful the symbols of Allah and neither the sacred month ولا الهدي and neither the sacrificial animals ولا القلائد and neither the garlands. And I keep on mentioning that this is the teaching of respect in Islam. We aren't just told to respect religion, the symbols of religion. We aren't just told to respect those who are senior to us in age, in authority, in learning, in knowledge, in piety. We aren't just told to respect our older brothers and sisters and our parents. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded us to even respect the garlands around the necks of the sacrificial animals, cattle, cows and camels that are headed to the house of Allah. We are not to spit in the direction of the qibla, if we can avoid it. We are not to answer the call of nature facing the direction of the qibla. Or placing the qibla behind us. Of course, there are difference. There's a difference of opinion as to in what circumstances this rule applies, and whether it's inside the building, out of the building, etc. That's a theological, or should I say, a fiqhi discussion, which I won't go into. I've explained it in thorough detail before in the commentary of Bukhari many, many years ago. But the principle is that you show respect even to the direction of the qibla. You show respect to the symbols of Allah's religion. And the symbols of Allah's religion include sacrificial animals and garlands around the necks. This is what respect is in Islam. It's not just about respecting one or two things. Respect is about all of these things. So the Prophet wasallam he marked the sacrificial animals, garlanded them, and then... Entering into the state of Ihram, he and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum left from the Hulayfa. Now, I'll end here. Inshallah, we will continue with the rest of the hadith next week. It's a very long hadith. I would request you that continue coming, encourage others to come. Do not become frustrated or exasperated with some of the details that I've discussed so far. This is the story of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is part of his beautiful seerah. We shouldn't be here for entertainment. But even if part of our heart and mind seeks thrill and entertainment, wallahi, there is no story No fable, no legend, no narrative. More beautiful, more captivating, more inspiring, and more thrilling than the story and the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Everything about him. Now we may be discussing garlands around the necks of cattle and sacrificial animals. 
before a believer who loves Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and wishes to learn and come to know everything about him, every detail matters. Every detail. And we will learn later. Wallahi, we can't understand who the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was. Urwat ibn Mas'ud al-Thaqafi, a great leader from the city of Ta'if originally. He visited the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We'll come across it later. When he went back to the Quraysh, he said to them, Quraysh, listen to me. Because he was a great man, Urwat ibn Mas'ud al-Thaqafi. He was so great that some of the Quraysh used to say that if Allah wanted to communicate with his creation, then why did he choose Muhammad ibn Abdullah? لَوْلَا نُزِّلَ هَذَا الْقُرْآنُ عَلَىٰ رَجْلٍ مِّنَ الْقَرْيَتَيْنِ عَظِيمٍ They said, why wasn't this Qur'an revealed to a great man from one of the two cities? And the two cities were Makkah or Ta'if. In Makkah, the dominant tribe was the Quraysh. In Ta'if, the dominant tribe was Banu Thaqif. And many of the Mufassireen say that who the Quraysh and the people were referring to, that why wasn't the Qur'an revealed to one of two great men of, to someone of the, a man of these two great cities, they were referring to either Walid ibn al-Mughira, the father of Khalid ibn al-Walid in Mecca, who was one of the greatest chieftains of the Quraysh, possibly the oldest chieftain amongst them at the time, or Urwat ibn Mas'ud al-Thaqafi from Ta'if. So he was a man who was held in great esteem, a noble, a leader, wise, intelligent. And he was a diplomat. As a result, he had traveled the world. So he went to meet the Prophet wasallam as part of the negotiations of Hudaybiyah. When he came back, he said to the Quraysh, he said, Quraysh, listen to me. I have been to the royal court of Byzantine, Rome. I have been to the royal court of Persia. I have been to the royal court of Najashi in Abyssinia. I have been to the royal courts of rulers and emperors and kings. But I have never seen any group of people, any group of subjects, any populace, revering and respecting and treating their king as I have seen the companions of Muhammad treat him. Leave him be. And then he went on to describe how. Why am I saying this? We were discussing about the garlands around the sacrificial, around the necks of the sacrificial animals. We may think nothing of it. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum, this is how a great diplomat and a politician and a wise leader described the Sahaba. He says, when he speaks, they rush to fulfill his command. When he spits, they rush to catch his spit and they anoint their faces and their bodies with his saliva. When he performs a wudu and ablution, they jostle with one another to catch the drops that uh, fall from his limbs. 
That's how the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were. Because they saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. For them, he wasn't just his ibadah. He wasn't just his connection with Allah. He wasn't just his wahi. He wasn't just his Qur'an. For the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, the water that dropped from his limbs, or even the saliva that came from his mouth, was worth its weight in gold. For, the, for as someone who loves another, when a simple mortal of the world loves another mortal, they love everything about them. They want to know everything about them. If someone loves a celebrity, they read every magazine, every article. They want to follow their style, their clothing, their hairstyle, their dietary choices, their colours, even their religious choices. They wish to follow in their footsteps. They are captivated by everything about the celebrity. The star, whose fans they are, they want to know everything about them. Every little bit of titillating gossip. What they are doing, every bit about them. These are, this is the relationship between someone who loves another mortal, another simple person of the dunya, for a believer who truly loves and should love the Prophet ﷺ more than he or she loves himself, herself, or even their parents. Every little detail of the life of Rasulullah ﷺ should be worth gold to us. And so there is no story, no narrative, that is as thrilling, as captivating, as inspiring as the story of Rasulullah as part of his seerah. And if you want to learn the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, you will find it in the most authentic books of hadith. And this is why I'm going through this very long hadith, and I request you to bear with me. Do not let any one section or any particular detail bore you, distract you, but immerse yourself in the details about the Prophet ﷺ. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.